Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. These are the words of our Savior in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A missionary was standing in line at the ticket counter of a major airline. And the man in front of him in the line was irate with the agent because he was not going to be able to fly first class to London like he thought. He was going to have to sit back in coach uh, with the peasants. He was loud, he was demanding, rude, and terribly insulting. And the missionary felt really badly that the man had abused the lady like that. So as soon as the man left and the missionary stepped up to the counter, he immediately profusely apologized for the behavior of the other customer. And the ticket agent kind of waved it off and said, oh, that's okay. I'm used to it. Happens all the time. And then a wry grin crossed her face and she said, and by the way, I just sent his luggage to Siberia. <laughs> Now, let's be honest, there is a part of us that wants to cheer that ticket agent because she got him. He was rude and ugly, and she got him back. Revenge and retaliation seem to be part of our fallen human nature. We are prone to pursue it, and we are prone to applaud it when others get by with it. If you hurt me, you inconvenience me, I'm going to find a way to get you back and I'll make sure that I hurt you worse than you ever hurt me. That is our philosophy. And some people even justify acts of retaliation and revenge by appealing to the authority of Scripture. After all, doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? But here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we began to see just a few weeks ago, the Lord Jesus challenges this popular misinterpretation of the Scripture. I hope you'll recall that he shows his disciples that the lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was not grounds for personal acts of vengeance. It was instead a standard of judicial assessment. It was a guide to the courts to make sure that the punishment was always appropriate to the crime, that the punishment was never unduly harsh nor unduly lenient. 
But it didn't justify acts of personal vengeance. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament law was very clear that acts of revenge are wrong. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against the members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. Here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples not to retaliate, not to seek revenge. Unfortunately, many of our English translations do not handle Jesus' command as clearly as I wish. The ESV says, for example, do not resist the one who is evil. And that could give us the idea that we are not to oppose evil deeds or evil people. Obviously, that's not what Christ is teaching here. Back in 1867, the British philosopher John Stuart Mill made his inaugural address at the University of St. Andrews. And he made this statement, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. This is often paraphrased with the expression, evil prevails when good men do nothing. Christ is not commanding his good disciples to do nothing in the face of evil. He is, however, prohibiting his disciples from retaliating, from acting out of vengeance. In other words, I would support the marginal translation that you find in some versions like the Christian Standard Bible, which says, do not retaliate against an evildoer. This is the point of the statement in the Greek text. Don't retaliate. Now, we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus applies this basic principle, don't retaliate, don't seek revenge, in four different practical situations. The first situation that we looked at before was don't seek vengeance when somebody inflicts a painful insult against you, when they give you that backhanded slap, which was highly insulting under the first century Jewish legislation. But now he's going to apply the same principle in some other cases. He's going to show that we should not seek revenge when somebody sues us in a court of law. We should not seek revenge when an oppressor coerces us in service. We should not seek revenge against an enemy at the time that they cry out for us to assist them with their needs. First of all, Christ says, do not seek revenge through legal strategies. Christ says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I'm afraid we often misunderstand this verse because we think anybody who wants to sue us for anything should be given whatever they want, whether the suit is legitimate or whether it's frivolous. And that is not what Christ is teaching here. We can be confident that this is a legitimate suit, that the disciple has actually harmed or defrauded another person in some way, and they should be making restitution. 
How do we know that this is a legitimate suit? Well, number one, the parallel in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 6.29, makes that clear. Because there, the plaintiff has already won their suit in the court of law, and payment is being demanded of the disciple. We also know that because the wording that Jesus uses here is very similar to the wording he used in Matthew 5, 25 through 26. There, the opponent won the suit and the court was demanding restitution from the disciple. Furthermore, frivolous lawsuits were pointless and very, very rare in the first century Jewish world. I don't have time to explain how they handled these suits, but it was a very fair and very just approach to civil cases, and frivolous lawsuits would have been pointless. So the point that I'm making is, a person is suing a Christian disciple in this passage, and they deserve to be paid the value of the disciple's tunic and cloak. But legally, the disciple is not obligated to give them the value of both their tunic and their cloak because of what we might call a legal loophole. Old Testament law reminds us that a person's garments in the ancient world were some of their most valuable possessions, typically. And so garments were actually used to barter with. They were even used as down payments on a loan or a pledge for a loan. But the Old Testament law said that the cloak, the outer garment, was such an essential piece of clothing that if given as collateral or a pledge, it could not be kept overnight. Exodus 22, 26 through 27 said, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, that is a pledge for a loan, return it to him before sunset. It is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. Otherwise, what will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen to his pleas because I am compassionate. Deuteronomy 24 repeated this very same teaching. Here's the point. That cloak, that outer garment, was what kept a person warm in the cold. It even served as the blanket that the poor slept in at night. And the Old Testament law said you should not deprive a person of that cloak. Based on that, many of the rabbis ruled that if someone sued you for a certain amount of money and in order to make that restitution, you would have to give up both your tunic and your cloak, you didn't have to actually pay them everything they deserved. All you had to do was give them the value of the tunic. The cloak was protected because of an application of this Old Testament principle. The point that I'm making is somebody could sue you and you could walk away due to this legal loophole without paying everything that the plaintiff actually deserved. And what Jesus says 
If, if someone sues you and they deserve the value of both the inner and the outer garment, you are to give up those pieces of your clothing in order to make full restitution to them. Now, many people have said Jesus can't actually mean what he says here. This must be an example of hyperbole, intentional exaggeration for the sake of making a point because after all, if the person gives up both their inner garment and their outer garment, they have no garments and Jesus does not approve of public nudity. Well, that's a clever explanation, but it is fallacious. I'm convinced that Jesus does actually mean precisely what he says here. This is no hyperbole. He expects us to literally obey his teaching. Why? Well, number one, that whole argument about public nudity assumes that people in the ancient world only had one outfit to wear. And I could cite 16 different Old Testament passages to show that most people had several outfits. And what's demanded here is that they give up the most valuable one in order to make restitution to the person that they have somehow harmed or defrauded. We know from the Old Testament that most people had special garments for mourning. They had special garments for feasting and celebration and so forth. So this has nothing to do with the issue of public nudity. Furthermore, some of the rabbis actually ruled that even if you had only one outfit, if someone sued you for the value of that outfit and you had nothing else to make restitution with, you were to give up that outfit and then replace it with much less expensive garments. That may be what Christ has in mind here as well. But the point is, a person who is being sued is not going to retaliate by trying to cheat the plaintiff out of what they actually deserve, but instead the disciple is going to do everything possible to make full restitution. The courts didn't demand this because of the legal protections for the cloak, the outer garment. So what Jesus is saying here is that you must be willing to relinquish your legal right to do what is morally and ethically right. Make full restitution to the person that you have aggrieved. And this would be a practical example of what Christ is talking about. Uh, let's say that a uh, Christian disciple had defaulted on a loan of 10 denarii. That's what he owes the plaintiff. The court can only seize his tunic, which is worth only three denarii. So he ends up making less than half of the restitution that the plaintiff actually deserves because the cloak worth seven denarii is under the legal protection based on the Old Testament commandment. And Jesus says, no, you go ahead and you sell both your tunic and your cloak so that you can make the full restitution of 10 denarii 
to the person that you borrowed the defaulted money from. You should bend over backwards to do what is right, to make amends, to display the integrity of a Christian disciple, and to earn the respect of your opponent. Now, we all know that that's not the way people would ordinarily respond to a civil suit. When sued, they would think, well, how dare you? And the goal would be to give the plaintiffs as little as possible, even if it was far, far less than they deserve. So you can imagine a person in the ancient world saying, oh, no, you're not taking my cloak. It has the protection of the courts based on the Mosaic law. And here's your tunic, and oh, by the way, sorry about those rips in the tunic. Not sure how they got there, and uh, I'm sorry that this tunic is a little smelly. I guess I forgot to wash it the last few weeks, and so forth. Responding to the suit with spite, with contempt, and vengeance. Jesus says that's not the Christian response. The Christian response is to do everything you can to make full restitution, not use legal loopholes to seek revenge. Treat your creditor fairly and in a manner that prompts reconciliation. And this is one of the ways that your light can shine before men and they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Then Christ gives another example. He says, if anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with him two miles. Here the Lord Jesus is referring to the Roman practice of requisition and impressment. The Roman government lacked the resources that it needed to con supply all the resources for its troops. And so they actually authorized Roman soldiers to seize the property of oppressed people or to force beasts of burden or oppressed people themselves into service for them when needed. As you can imagine, this was very, very offensive to first century Jews. Syrians had done something similar to this, but what the Romans did exceeded what even the Syrians did. The Syrians could force your beast of burden to serve them so they could temporarily seize your ox or your donkey. But the Romans could actually force you into their service, making you their beast of burden. We see an example of this in Matthew 27, 32. The Lord Jesus has been so bludgeoned by his Roman scourging. He has lost so much blood that he is too physically weak to carry the cross beam of his cross to the place of execution. And so Simon of Cyrene is compelled. That is, he's impressed into service by the Roman soldiers. And that could be done of any person in Israel at any time during the time of the Roman occupation. This was deeply offensive to the Jewish people because it was reminiscent of their slavery in Egypt. 
before the Exodus. But now their slavery wasn't in a foreign land. Their slavery was in their own holy land, on the very soil promised to Father Abraham. This compulsion to service was even more offensive because sometimes you were compelled to serve not just on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, but even on the Holy Sabbath day, the day that the Old Testament law said that no Jew was to work or to labor. And some of the Roman soldiers delighted in forcing the Jews to labor on the Sabbath, not only uh, to force them to serve, to demean their dignity, but also to soil their own consciences. Now, the Roman soldiers wisely limited impressments to a Jew carrying a burden for just one mile. Legally, they could have gone further than that, but they typically restrained things and said, we'll, we'll just make you carry this pack for one mile because they knew if they pressed those Jewish people too hard and too far, that their anger would boil up into full rebellion. And they didn't want to fight that battle. So they would drive the Jewish people to the breaking point about a mile, and then they would allow them to set the pack down and transfer it to the shoulders of another Jew that they impressed into their service. But Jesus says to his disciples, when you have carried the Roman soldier's pack a full mile, you don't throw it into the dust in anger and frustration. You turn to the Roman soldier and you kindly offer to carry it yet a second mile. And by serving the hated Romans patiently, kindly, and sacrificially, you express the heart and character of your heavenly Father who lavishes love not only on his friends, but even on his enemies. Do not seek revenge by withholding acts of service and kindness from others. Do not vent your hostility against the Roman oppressor by refusing to carry the pack. Carry it far further than even he expects in order to display the love of Christ. And then the Lord Jesus gives us one final illustration. He teaches us to not seek revenge by withholding generosity. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this is familiar Old Testament teaching because the Old Testament repeatedly commanded God's people to assist the poor. Now, I want to quickly add that these commands are more practical than is sometimes assumed today. And they are carefully qualified. For example, Leviticus 25, 36 through 37 says, if your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, then you're commanded to 
uh, offer him charitable giving. Uh, notice that the principle there is not give to every person who resents the fact that you might have more than they do. No, you give to one who is truly destitute, to one who cannot meet their own needs. And this is a principle that runs throughout the New Testament as well as the Old. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.15 summarizes the content of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but he does so in the context of a command to warn those who are lazy. Then he goes on in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15 to say, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Wow. That would be offensive to many people in our increasingly socialist society today. Now, now pay careful attention to Paul's words. He didn't say, if someone cannot work, they should not eat. If they cannot work, then they meet that qualification of true destitution, inability to meet their own needs that the Old Testament law described. But this is a person who isn't willing to work. Paul says, oh no, they should not be supported by the church's generosity. They should be told to get off their high ends and roll up their sleeves and get to work. Qualifications such as this in both Old Testament and New make it clear that Jesus is not teaching in Matthew 5, 42 that we should give anything to anybody who might want it. Some people have been puzzled by the fact that Jesus makes this statement in verse 42 after laying down the basic principle, do not retaliate against an evildoer in verse 39. And they think, this doesn't really belong here. These statements don't have anything in relationship with one another. This statement is completely unrelated to the context. But oh no, the context is actually the key to properly interpreting it. What Christ is teaching his disciples is that they are not to use their charitable giving as a means of rewarding people who might flatter them and punishing or retaliating against people who might have harmed them. Actually, there were some ancient Jewish teachers who said, when your enemy is in need, you have no obligation to help them out. As a matter of fact, it's better if you don't. Uh, listen to these words from Sirach 12. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread. Do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. And then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. For the Most High God also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good alone. Do not help the one who has sinned against you. Wow. 
Sirach goes on to explain that many people have enemies that they won't even recognize until they begin to experience personal adversity. And then when they face a time of adversity and they begin to ask others for help, then their enemies will suddenly become manifest. Because when you cry out to assist, for them to assist you in their needs, their reply is going to be, now let me get this straight. After what you have done to me in the past, you expect me to help you now? Are you kidding me? But Jesus says that we are not to respond to those who have harmed us in the past in their time of adversity by coldly turning away. He says, no, if they come begging to you, this isn't your opportunity to retaliate. This is your opportunity to show kindness and compassion. If they need to borrow something from you, this is not the time to indignantly refuse. This is the time to help them out. You are not to view your charitable giving as an opportunity to seek vengeance against others or retaliate against others. Christ condemns even these passive-aggressive expressions of retaliation. When our enemy is down and out, that is not the time for us to rub salts in their wounds. That's not the time for us to kick them when they're down. It is the very moment that we are to express love and generosity. Christ says in Romans 12 through the Apostle Paul, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Why does Christ teach this? Well, remember, one of the goals of the Sermon on the Mount is not merely to keep the commandments of God preserved for us in the Old Testament. It is to display the character of God because we are sons and daughters of God. His own spiritual and moral character has been imparted to us. Thus, we are to relate to sinners, we are to relate even to our enemies as the Father relates to sinners, as the Father relates to His enemies. And how does the Father relate to His enemies? With grace and mercy. And we can be thankful that He does because if He did not, there would be no hope for any one of us in this room. Every one of us was a sinner who rebelled against the authority of our Creator. We shook a defiant fist in His face and said, No, I won't live the way you say. I will live my way, and you need to simply butt out. In the face of that kind of rebellion, God should, could have immediately unleashed all of His wrath against us. And yet instead... He gave us full opportunity to repent. 
And instead, he sent his own son to live the perfect life that we cannot live and go to Calvary's cross and bear the punishment for our sin in our place so that we could escape the punishment we rightly deserve. God responded to rebellious sinners, to those who declared enmity against him with grace, with mercy, and compassion. And that is the only reason that any one of us in this room has assurance of the forgiveness of sin and the promise of spending eternity with the Holy God. And now we are called upon to display to others the same grace, mercy, and compassion that the Father has lavished on us. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. In Greek, there are several ways of making a comparison. Here, the intensive comparative particle is used. What the Apostle Paul is saying is we need to forgive those who have sinned against us, not kind of like God has forgiven us. We need to forgive them exactly like God has forgiven us with that same powerful grace, mercy, and compassion to the full extent. And in doing so, we display our gratitude to the Heavenly Father for the forgiveness, forgiveness He granted to us, and we display the character of our Heavenly Father as His spiritual sons and daughters. We let our light shine before men so that they see our good works and glorify not us, but our Father who is in heaven, because it is from that Father that we have received this holy character. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Christ has given us example after example after example, for in fact, practical ways that we should refrain from vengeance and retaliation and display forgiveness and mercy. Are there people that you need to forgive? Have you been making digs at a person who has harmed you in the past? Have you been lashing out even in passive, aggressive ways? As sons and daughters of God, we need to pray that we will have the heart and character of the Heavenly Father and respond to others with kindness and with mercy. If you have a hard time 
expressing kindness and mercy to others, maybe it's because you've never come to understand and experience the kindness and mercy of God. You can today. By confessing faith in Jesus Christ as your God, Savior, and King. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, every sin you have ever committed and ever will commit can be fully and freely forgiven. And you who are the enemy of God can be reconciled to him and become the child of God, the friend of God. Because Jesus bore the punishment we deserve in our place. We can be made right, even with a God who is holy, 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 holy through and through. If you'd like to confess faith in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King, in a few moments when we sing together, I invite you to come forward and take one of our church leaders by the hand and say, I need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ today. And we can explain to you what the next steps are. You can leave this place today with a conscience that is clear, knowing that heaven will be your eternal home. Father, thank you for your great kindness and mercy. Without it, we would be doomed and damned. We know that there is nothing good in us that should ever have deserved your many kindnesses to us. We are overwhelmed by your great grace. Our Father, thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his powerful resurrection. Thank you for moving us by your powerful grace to repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you now for the steadfast assurance that we are your own sons and daughters. Show that to the world now as we manifest your character as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name.